One, two, three. The following is a Laura Flanders Show audio exclusive. Don't mess with Texas, that's what they say. But how about your ideas about Texas? Chances are they are overdue for a review. Last September, Texas lawmakers passed SB 8, the most extreme abortion ban in the U.S., criminalizing abortion after just six weeks with virtually no exceptions and deputizing individuals and groups anywhere to sue. This March, Texans voted in the first primaries of this midterm election year amid an uproar over voting restrictions, rejected ballots, attacks on migrants, and an unrelenting assault, not only on pregnant people and those who help them, but also on virtually everything having to do with trans rights. Red, Republican, Texas has certainly been a testing ground for backlash policies and politicians. And that could be what's happening now. But could it also be a bellwether of a different sort? Our guests today say that their state could also be predicting how 21st century change happens when people organize differently. What do people who don't live there have wrong about Texas? And what do Texans see as the path to reclaiming their state? Joining me today are activists from several intersecting movements in Texas. Amy Arambide is the director of Avow, which focuses on abortion access, reproductive health, rights, and justice. Isha Pandit is co-founder of the Center for Advancing innovative policy. She's also a member of the Crunk Feminist Collective and co-founder of South Asian Youth in Houston Unite. Emmett Schelling is the director of the Transgender Education Network of Texas, or TENT, an organization dedicated to gender diverse equality in Texas. And we're also going to be hearing from Greg Kazar, a labor organizer, working families party member, and progressive Democrat who won the primary on March 1st and now stands to run to represent a district that runs all the way from Austin to San Antonio. A lot to talk about in what I know is going to be too little time. We are messing with people's minds on Texas, but let's start perhaps with what they need to know about where things stand. And Amy, I'm going to start with you. Um, What is front and center of your mind right now in terms of the threats that issues and people that you care about are facing there in Texas. Sure, so thank you so much for having me on the show. Essentially abortion has been pretty much banned in Texas since September, so over six months for the majority of people seeking abortion care, and that's not okay. It's also not in line with what the majority of Texans support. Texans support access to abortion care, and that's just been the truth since before Roe v. Wade. And so it's really difficult to be living in this post-Roe world that we're experiencing now. Texans are having to travel out of state to access the care they need, or they're being forced to to carry their pregnancies to term. And that's absolutely not okay. And what about you, Emmett? What's front and center of your mind? Right now, we, we are in the midst of a vicious attack on trans kids and their parents, their caregivers, uh, essentially criminalizing them uh, simply for getting care for their for their children uh, with physicians who are actually educated to provide that kind of care, unlike our legislators. Elaborate on that just a little by what you mean. 
Yeah. So uh, unfortunately, what we're dealing with uh, with our leadership is an AG who issued an opinion that was based on zero merit, zero fact. A governor who took that opinion issued a directive to DFPS or Department of Family Protective Services uh, to ask CPS uh, to investigate any uh, trans kids uh, that were um, thought to have gender affirming care. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, what it did is the same vigilante sort of uh, reporting on your neighbor, uh, really creating a climate that just is not indicative and is not genuine to actual Texas. So those are two aspects of a statewide story that goes, we could talk about the many challenges that Texas is facing right now, but Isha, I'm going to ask you to kick off, you know, your sense of what is Texas up against and why should those of us outside the state care? Yeah, I mean, I think what Amy and Emmett articulated beautifully is the criminalization of self-determination that's been happening in this state. Um, criminalization of fa many families, of people trying to control their own families. And so when you hear Texas politicians say that they are pro-family, you will know that what they, you know, what they're actually up to over here is actually criminalizing um, safety for many families in the state. And, you know, I think Texas is a really interesting fascination that the mainstream media has. Um, mostly because it defies easy categorization. And I think one of the things that pro many progressives are doing right now is a very short-sighted kind of thing of making jokes about secession, plan, you know, talking about the state as this place that can just be sort of dismissed as a lost cause. And on the one hand, that's, you know, really hurtful to those of us that are fighting really hard for our communities here. But on the other hand, it's pretty ahistorical. Texas is only relatively recently dominated by far right politics. They are terrible and brazen, but they have not been in power forever. And so why would we act as though this is over? I mean, the, the only other thing I will add here is that Far-right politicians, they know that Texas is a battleground state. They are approaching Texas as though there is something to be won here. And so my you know, sort of call to reconfiguration of like how we talk about Texas is that why aren't progressives approaching Texas as a place where so there is something to be won, a place that is on the cusp of sort of political and demographic shift? And that is the reason why this is such a battleground state for many conservatives. Well, if people watch the Academy Awards, they may have seen Wanda Sykes um, handing somebody a shredded ballot and saying, you know, enjoy yourself voting in Texas. There has been some coverage of the assaults on voting rights. Um, can you talk a bit about your relationship with that question, Amy? And, and what's the reality behind this um, voting rights dispute that was being referenced there? I mean, I think it is all connected, right? One of the reasons why the, the extreme right has been in power for so long is that Texas was a gerrymandered state, is a gerrymandered state, we're a voter suppressed state. 
We're also not engaging our electorate as much as we could have been over the past two decades. So that led to a hostile environment in the Texas ledge. And we know that the same people that attack voting rights, attack trans rights, attack abortion rights. And I mean, we're fighting against the same thing. So I think I would agree with Isha completely, like don't dismiss Texas because the majority of us actually support human rights and believe in them. We've just been kind of boxed out of it by the systems at play. Yeah, I mean, I'm hearing two things. I mean, one, absolutely, there's a reason the right are going all out to win Texas. Um, and certain parts of Texas are specifically in their sights. Let's talk about that in a minute. But Emmett, to you, why does this feel so critical to you? And can you place the fight for trans rights in this sort of spectrum of intersecting assaults that we're hearing about? Yeah, you know, at the end of the day, um, we're talking about people's freedom, their bodily autonomy, their decisions over their health care. What impacts an individual the most is health. At the end of the day, when you hear people that have a lot of money and say, you know, I have all this money, but all this money in the world cannot buy me my health. When we're talking about what does that fundamentally look like for oneself to have the decisions over that. And then I think taking a step back to say, why is this a debate? Uh, you know, it, it, it's very boggling for me. Uh, and I wanted to make sure, you know, to just address one thing real quick. One point of frustration for me is when people are like, well, forget Texas, right? Like who cares? And then you have the same progressive saying, trans lives matter. Texas has the second highest population of transgender people in this country. So if you say trans lives matter, then that includes the trans lives in this state. The question of abortion is similar in the sense that we're already on track to see, I think the Guttmacher Institute is predicting something like 26 states following the route of Texas. And just to underscore what's unique so far over the Texas about the Texas model, Amy, why we should be afraid? I mean, there are several reasons. One, it's blatantly unconstitutional. Banning abortion at six weeks is completely unconstitutional. But the bounty hunter um, component of the bill where they essentially deputize anyone to sue anyone for, quote, aiding and abetting abortion access is just completely contrary to any sort of judicial prudence that is established. Like you cannot just allow anybody to sue anyone for like a difference of opinion. And furthermore, just accessing the healthcare that they need or want. And it's just, it's bananas. Like the fact that that has been, in, has been implemented in Texas and then it's been introduced and passed in Idaho um, Florida, like a lot of states are following suit. And this is alarming. Not only is abortion care going to be completely banned in 26 states after June, but what if this starts happening? I mean, it's already started happening when trans kids in Texas, but it's going to spread to any sort of human right that anyone disagrees with. And we cannot set that precedent. All right. So we're going to switch in a second to what is being done differently in Texas that we can learn from. And, and one of the things that's being done is you are speaking very explicitly about being pro-abortion, Amy. I mean, that's a break 
with tradition, a break with the, the, the wisdom that's been handed down by decades of spin masters and mistresses, I suppose, um, mostly in Washington, mostly representing legal organizations. Can you talk about that? Absolutely. Well, one of the things is we changed our name to Avow. Uh, our tagline is Unapologetic Abortion Advocacy because we believe that you have to address the culture and stigma around abortion care. Despite the fact that the majority of Americans and the majority of Texans support abortion access, many of the laws don't reflect that. And one of the reasons I believe that is behind that is that the opposition uses the word abortion four times more than our side does. So in fact, they've been able to frame the narrative. They've been able to spread misinformation and lies. They've been able to enact laws based on false claims. And I think we have to change that dynamic. We have to take back the word abortion. And then second to that, like one in four people will have an abortion in their lifetime. That is so many people that you love and care about within your community. And we have to talk about how we support the choices they make and support the families they build or choose not to build. You know, this is... This is about love. Abortion is about love for yourself. It's about love for the family you want to create maybe later, the family that you already have and are you know complete with. And I think that that's one of the most important things that we can do right now to change the trajectory of abortion rights is to just unapologetically declare how pro-abortion we are. I think it's one in four people who can get pregnant, right? Correct. Emmett, to you, are you, what's distinct in your approach, if there's a comparable distinction to be drawn? Yeah, I, I think we're, just like Amy said, uh, we're in a age here where uh, I think the new sort of landscape of leadership, when we look at Texas, is very uh, BIPOC. It's very, like, across the board with gender, uh, with ability, with language even, right? And that's reflective of the state. And I think for so long, uh, even, you know, in our, you know, quote unquote, progressive circles, that was not the case when you looked at the leadership. And in order, I think, to really lead successfully, right, we need leaders that actually are reflective of the constituency, right, that they're leading, of uh, really understand are tied directly uh, to who the people are and understanding that and combining that with their own expertise, uh, education, knowledge, whatever that looks like. And I think that's what we're doing different in Texas is that we're unapologetically stepping out and we're saying, no, this may have been who you said we are. This may have been what you said we were about, but like we're here to like clear the air and like let you know straight from us this is who we are, this is what we look like, and this is what we are about. Well, Greg Kazara ran on a fairly unapologetically progressive and pro-labor platform this spring and won the Democratic primary March 1st. I had a chance to catch up with him and talk with him about how he is now going to run for Congress. Here's Greg. Yeah, I'm Greg Kazar. I've been in immigrants' rights and labor organizer here in Texas since I was in college. I never thought I'd be running for elected office, but uh, ran for the city council, uh, became the youngest ever elected city council member here and did that work for seven years, working on issues of housing as a human right, uh, fighting for higher wages for working Texans, uh, making our city not just the live music capital of the world, but the fight back capital of the Texas pushing, pushing back against a lot of the extremist attacks against immigrants and working class folks in 
my city, uh, and then decided to run for the United States Congress uh, because it's so important for us to be able to have support, uh, progressive support from the federal government into the South. That historically has been what has been able to block things like voter suppression attempts in our past, been able to pass uh, when you know the federal government standing up for civil rights protection is so important for people in places like Texas in our history. Uh, and so was inspired to run. Was there a specific event that prompted you to run for Congress? You know, I think working at the local level is so very important and I appreciate deeply what folks do. Uh, but one thing that I worked on, for example, was passing paid sick time laws in my city of Austin, but I actually worked alongside organizers to pass them in the same year in both Dallas and in San Antonio, because we know that there's strength in numbers and that this is an overwhelmingly popular policy all over the country, especially in Texas. So we passed paid sick time laws guaranteeing everyone the right that if they got sick, you don't have to go to work and get everybody else sick. Or if your kid gets sick, you can keep them at home and you don't have to go to work and send them to school where they'll get everybody else sick. And in the middle of the pandemic, uh, our all Republican Supreme Court for entirely political purposes blocked that paid sick time law when we needed it the most. And really to me, it's in Congress that we can go and override that by passing paid sick time for everyone. Uh, and so it's things like that. What gave you the confidence that to run and, and the feeling that you could win? I had had the opportunity to organize communities from East Austin all the way down to San Antonio for years. And so even though uh, I'll be one of the youngest members of the Congress. Actually, for a long time, I'd been doing that work. So even though folks might sometimes call young folks inexperienced, I'd really been in the trenches here throughout Texas working with communities. And there was horrible gerrymandering continued to be done in our state, but it just so happened that they tried to link up all of these working class communities, neighborhoods of color, Latino and black neighborhoods, where we'd actually been organizing for a long time. And so when the district's maps got drawn, I said, this is uh, this seat that uh, Congressman Lloyd Doggett previously had served in, but now he's gonna be serving in a different seat, is really links up all of these communities of color and progressive Texans that I've been working with. And it could be, uh, it's, they drew these gerrymandered districts in order to try to dilute progressive power. But in some ways we could flip the script on them by saying, well, here's a taste of what progressive Texas could look like if, um, a bold progressive movement that we've been building in Texas really takes hold in this seat rather than it being held by maybe a Democrat who spends more ta time talking about what we can't do. What if we bring together the people that are doing the work that we must do in Texas all together in this district? Now, famously, the Republicans redistricting Texas have done it to their own advantage. Um, you may be able to flip the switch, but is the flip side of that story the rest of the state? Um, what leads you to believe that yours isn't just an exception in Texas and rather a model potentially for the state as a whole? No, we, I got asked all the time in running for this seat, why go from the city council where you can get things done every week to going and being in a progressive minority in the Congress or being amongst a minority of progressives in Texas? But in my view, that's actually the wrong starting point for the question because the overwhelming majority of Texans, I believe from having worked inside and outside my district, believe in a much higher minimum wage, believe that healthcare should be a right and not something that you have to start GoFundMes for to be able to pay for life-saving medication. The overwhelming majority of Texans believe that Black Lives Matter 
and in the rights of our LGBTQ neighbors. That's what most people think, but we just need to actually do the work to organize that majority into changing the right-wing um, policies and politicians that run our state. And so what we have to do is use these limited democratic seats to do that organizing work, to not just remain in power, but actually as Democrats uh, in a few safe seats, but actually expand that power across the state. So are people outside of Texas who only see the Bushes or the Abbots and legislation like the anti-trans rights laws and the most extreme abortion ban in the country coming out of Texas. Do we have Texas wrong? And if so, in what ways? When some people think of Texas, they think of the Bushes or Greg Abbott or Dan Patrick. But I think of Barbara Jordan. I think of Ann Richards. I think of Emma Denayuka and the Pecan Shellers Union that built some of the most radical and progressive unions of women of color in our nation's history. That was here in Texas. While lots of folks think about Texas as uh, the voter suppression law or our uh, anti-abortion laws that have basically banned abortion in Texas. And that is all real and true. Um, At the same time, Texas is the home of Roe v. Wade. This is where Roe v. Wade was won. Uh, This is also uh, the home of, I think, the most flourishing and strong immigrants' rights movement in our country. And so I think that we need to sort of lean into and build up and support that fight back. Because in so many ways, my race for Congress was a piece of that. It wasn't just me that won. Um, It was that people wanted to go and vote for $15 an hour instead of a tax on workers' rights. They wanted to vote not only against the abortion ban in our state, but for making Roe v. Wade the law of the land and repealing the Hyde Amendment. People overwhelmingly believe in that kind of change. And so that's why Texas, to me, isn't a red state. It's an underorganized state, and it's time for us to invest in that kind of organizing. You haven't won your seat yet. You've run the primary. Who are you up against, and how likely is it that you're going to be the next congressman from your district? I was really proud that we won four times the votes of anyone else in the primary because we talked about a bold agenda of what we have to get done as Texans. And this is a Democratic district. Um, Most districts in gerrymandered states like ours are either built for a Democrat or Republican. There's maybe one or two swing seats left in the state. So most likely I'll be the member of Congress uh, come January of next year. But the, the, the prior myth was that there are some things called safe seats, right? That this, there's some safe Republican seats and some safe Democratic seats. But I don't consider my seat a safe seat when most people in my district don't have access to their constitutional right to an abortion anymore. When corporations are making huge amounts of money and flooding into Texas, but folks are having more and more trouble getting by. It's not a, it's not a safe seat in that way. And so what I'm gonna to try to do and what we should do is have these places where likely a Democrat is going to win, to actually continue to organize in those places, to make sure that working class folks get out and vote. We're amongst the lowest states in the country for voter turnout. If we got most more communities of color and working class folks to recognize that this system that has failed them could work if we all jointly participate. That's what changes the state because this isn't a state of overwhelmingly reactionary people. It's a state where overwhelmingly reactionary people have run the show for so long that most folks say, you know, I just don't want to participate anymore. You are going to be a different kind of Democrat, clearly. 
can you elaborate on what that means to you? And maybe you could mention who came down to campaign on your behalf and Jessica Cisneros behalf, but to give us a sense of what kind of a Democrat you are. We have already started to see a different kind of Democrat in DC that I think is so inspirational. And once you start seeing that that's possible, then more and more of us decide to go and do it too. And so I was so inspired by seeing Cori Bush as a freshman member of Congress uh, last year. She didn't wait to move up the seniority ladder. She didn't negotiate with Joe Manchin and Mitch McConnell. No, instead she went and slept on the Capitol steps protesting the end of an eviction ban, got the president to extend that eviction ban, and that kept thousands of people in their homes. I'm so inspired by people like Pramila Jayapal, who came down here and campaigned uh, for me, who's building out a progressive caucus, a set of dozens of legislators who don't just cave to a little bit of pressure, but actually are fighting for healthcare as a human right, fighting for union rights, fighting for abortion rights. And so uh, to me, I think it's really important to legislate, but then also to use your voice, because imagine if you just had a few dozen members of Congress that were willing to sleep on the Capitol steps or willing to... Uh, you know, stand up and say that something is so deeply wrong, no matter who is doing it, I think you could change the politics of the country. But then I think there needs to be a Texas angle to this. You know, this is the place where you had paid sick time taken away in a pandemic. This is the place where trans kids are being targeted, where the voter suppression laws are being tested out that they're trying to spread across the country. And so this needs to be the place where some of this progressive politics is born. And so part, I think, of a job of a member of Congress is to build unions in places like Texas, not just on the far-flung coasts, to build tenants' unions here in Texas, to build renewable energy here in Texas, which is the fossil fuel capital of the world. So I think that a lot of times we've thought of this new progressive brand of Democrat of just being for far-flung places away from the South. But instead, I think it's actually exactly in places like Texas where um, we have frankly, the most at stake and where if we change things here, it changes the country. We're closing our shows this season by asking people what they think what they think is at stake right here in this moment that fuels their decision to do the work that they do. To me, I think that um, I, I think of a really particular moment uh, right after Trump was elected. Uh, it was February, uh, right after his inauguration. And ICE officers were sent to my city here in Texas to separate families for political purposes, to make a point. Um, And it was horrific. It was uh, an attack on families. It was an attack on people's civil rights. Uh, it It was just a really, really scary and horrifying time. But it was in that moment that immigrant families also flooded the street with cars and their music and and in protest, but also in celebration, reclaiming this place here in Texas as home. And so to me, what is going on right now is a a potential attack on our very democracy that we're seeing from Republicans and those in in power. We're seeing uh, an existential climate crisis that we're facing. We are facing uh, attacks on just people's ability to, to thrive and survive. We're in a moment uh, we're on the precipice of even greater war. It's it's a it's a time of real tension, um, but it's in these very moments I think where movements need to step up and be built and be born, where we show the best in us, 
um, to be able to turn the page, to be able to say, you know what, we're going to have elections that count and that we're going to include more and more people in, in voting. In Texas, where we're saying there's so little we can do about the climate crisis, it's actually exactly where we need to create climate renewable green energy jobs to be able to save our economy for working people and save our future for our kids. It's right now that we can actually finally say abortion rights and voting rights and civil rights are for everyone, right? When they're most under attack from a place like Texas. So I think it's kind of in that darkest moment where the light shines the most bright and we have to own uh, own that light and, and embrace it instead of saying, oh no, we can't get too close to that light because what if things get worse? Um, and so this is really, I think the moment to do that. And I think my election shows that Texas isn't uh, a red state. It is a place where uh, folks are, are sick and tired of that. And we have to bring people in, organize folks. And, and I really believe that our democracy is gonna be able to work from us. Well, you persuaded me, I'm moving to Texas. I think of it now in a whole different way. And um, red state, maybe just different kind of red. Um, thank you, Greg. Thanks so much, Laura. You're, you're welcome in Texas anytime. We'll have the chilaquiles ready for you, you know, um, and, uh, and yeah, we'll, we'll show you some spots that hand make their own tortillas here. This was fantastic, truly. So that was Greg Kazar speaking to us earlier. Um, coming to you, Isha, I mean, Greg's very clear there. He says, you know, that Texas, he's famous for saying Texas isn't a red state, it's an unorganized state. Now, I don't know if you would agree with that, but it is being organized in different ways today, it seems to me. And, and you have a kind of angle or a view on a lot of this from your perch. Can you talk about what's new, noteworthy and what we should be learning from Texas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Movements love to use Texas as a cautionary tale to raise money for their causes, and political strategists often get a lot wrong about how this the state works. And Amy and Emmett articulated very powerfully who's actually running some of our movements here, why they're so uh, visionary. And I think that's what we really need to pay attention to is the organizing that's happening here on behalf of reproductive justice, gender justice, immigrants' rights. We also have a very robust, powerful movement on climate justice. And, you know, I live in Houston and there's a lot of powerful organizing happening here to center communities of color in um, Harvey recovery and other climate catastrophe recovery. And so if you look around at the leadership of our movements here in Texas, uh, ground up organizing. It is led by communities most impacted. And that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And that is part of the story that is not told about what's happening here. And instead, we get sort of national organizers saying, here's how we've done it in these other states. And, you know, back to my point, Texas is a very unique political state. It's not the way that we think about the complicated nature of New York or California. There's so many nuances that go into national conversations about the red parts of the state, the blue parts of the state, the purple parts of the state. Texas doesn't get that gracious interpretation of being a complicated state. It is painted with one brush and then we're expected to use movement strategies that are based on that, that one particular lens of Texas and they don't line up with the vibrant nature of organizing by impacted communities that's happening here. And I think that's the story. That's the story of what's happening in Texas is the diverse resistance. Now, some strains of the Republican Party woke up to that going back to the ages of, of the first, uh, well, the second Bush. 
um, first and second Bush, where they saw progress that could be made for Republicans, particularly in the, the Latino population. Can you talk about whether that, you know, your, your attitude to that? Are you worried about the GOP um, winning, particularly South Texas, Isha? Yeah, I mean, this is going to require a lot of nuance from Democrat Democratic politicians and organizers, because if you've ever been to the you know, it's a clear to me that people who were commenting on what happened in the last round of elections in South Texas at the border had never been there um, because it is a heavily militarized zone and the politics of places like that are impacted by that reality. And you cannot paint it with one single brush. You have to talk to the organizers on the ground there. So I hope that that is a lesson learned um, and you know about what we might expect from communities because I think part of our point here too is that there's all kinds of diversity in Texas. And if you sort of try to sort of paint communities of color with one brush, you're going to also come up with an ineffective strategy for how you're working, you know, in a place. So what happens in a, in a state at the border where there, where it's been heavily militarized and increasingly militarized over the past few years? What kind of policies are people going to want to see in order to feel safe? And if you're just sort of ap approaching that with one lens and you're not talking to the folks who are there feeling threatened, um, by the shifting, you know, political establishment, we just got done with four years of hearing uh, a safety message from only one side of the aisle. You know, so it it's not it wasn't surprising to me what happened there, but I think you really have to talk to the organizers there and see what's resonating with people, what makes them feel safe, what makes them feel heard, and I think, you know, thinking about Texas as distinct regions with distinct politics is really important in understanding so Amy, what, and what messages do, do you find resonating that perhaps the rest of us should pick up or learn from or at least try out on our neighbors? Sure. I mean, I think when you're talking about abortion, you start from a place of values. You explain why it's important for anyone who wants to access the healthcare they need to be able to do so in their community, to be able to do so without any obstacles that are legislatively dictated and not medically, you know, reasonable. Um, and you have to talk about why that's important to you. And then you can back it up with facts. You know, the fact that one of the largest populations of people of reproductive health age are in Texas and why making like banning access to one of the safest procedures is not okay. And I think you have to talk to them about what's happening in our legislature. And then you can talk to them about the facts. And generally what we've found is when we have conversations with people leading with our values, and backing up with facts, people are on our side. Sometimes they just haven't been approached or asked the same question or haven't been given all the details because let's, <laughs> I mean, the legislature is not necessarily the most approachable like situation in Texas. So it's really hard to actually know what's going on. So I think it's important that we just have conversations and talk about it with our communities and our friends. And the trans situation, Emmett, I mean, this is personal for you, for your family. Um, for a lot of people, the assaults have come so hot and heavy, whether it's school rooms, school sports teams or bathrooms or now reassignment surgery. The trauma is lingering over entire communities, as far as I can see, not just in Texas. Um, how are you dealing with that part of this? And what's your, your learning, your teaching for us? Yeah, you know, I... I think uh, to start off, right, it's it's not a reassignment. It, it's an alignment, right? 
for me, um, all of the like medical care that I have like sought and uh, been so fortunate to get, right? It it was alignment for me. It was bringing my body, my being in line with my spirit, in line with my mind, in line of who I inherently and deeply and only I know myself to this level. Uh, and so I think like, you know, just as Amy said, there's some fundamental things that, that we're seeing, right? Isha as well, right? That, that aren't necessarily trans specific or even abortion specific, but, but I think they're just fundamental human values, uh, the, the dignity, the sort of humanity that binds us together. We want to be free. We want to be able to have decisions over our own health. We want as parents to be able to make the correct decisions in line with our family values, in line with our situation of what we know at, at health within our like family history, within what is happening as we see uh, our children. Like at the end of the day, there, there's these fundamental things that come down of how do we show up and show each other dignity regardless? I think right now we are in such a temperamental time where we are trying to figure out how to find that road back to showing each other dignity to be able to engage in conversations that are so vitally needed. But first we need to get some fundamental things out of the way. I think that like we respect, you know, the constitution that we are not going to sit there and entertain that there's two sides of like that sort of viewpoint. We're not going to entertain that. Like I've, deserve to exist or not like I think we're beyond that right and once we can figure that road out to get through those things that we already inherently know and we recognize in each other just being in this world being in community being in space together sharing the state we'll get back to where we need to be because at the end of the day the reason the people in the state fight so hard and deal with our colleagues who aren't here uh, feeling like a mixture of I think sorry for us and just like why, frustrated just leave uh, is because we know this we see it every single day in our lives and the people that we see if it's on the street or if it's in our community and we know each of these people is worth fighting for. And we know right now, Texans are not getting a fair shake. They're being taken advantage of by our leadership who is peddling in lies and deceit for the sake of sick political power at this point. You, you alluded to it there, Emmett, but I'm reminded of sort of where we began that the, all the mythology around don't mess with Texas, don't step on me, all of that. Um, Isha, you touched on what it seem what seems to me is a very potentially rich theme for Texans who believe strongly in independence and and liberty and freedom. Um, when you talked about the criminalization of self determination, if ever there was a Texan value, it seems like self determination is one of them, along with mutual aid and support, as we just heard. This is such a tacky question, but are you hopeful of of um, seeing the change that you seek? to see and what sort of timeline are we talking about Isha well I'm gonna artfully dodge the timeline question because who even knows but I will say I am hopeful I mean I'm not always hopeful but I am generally hopeful I think because of um 
I think because of this thing that both Amy and Emmett articulated and because of elect candidates running for office like Greg, you know, who are saying this is our state too. Um, our families live here also. We have just as much a right to claim the politics of Texas and to ask for it to represent us and our families as anyone else. And that is a huge shift in the, in the conversation around who a Texan is. And to me, as I have, you know, evolved in my understanding of who a Texan is, I mean, you're looking at three people who identify as Texans. And when you close your eyes before this call, if you closed your eyes and thought of who you think a Texan is, you wouldn't have pictured our faces necessarily, is my guess, you know? And I, that is what makes me hopeful. The very thing that makes um, conservative politicians, uh, you know, wake up in the middle of the night in terrors of demographic shift is the exact thing that gives me hope. But I do know that the that demographics aren't political destiny and that we have to organize and we have to understand that, you know, that investment in those communities as civic actors um, both as citizens and non-citizens alike, as civic actors, is the solution to, to kind of countering some of these stories that we hear about who Texans are. I mean, we had four years of vitriol about who Mexican immigrants are, right? And so we have a lot of shifts to make. That stuff sticks in people's brains, even who wouldn't necessarily articulate it themselves. And I feel like that, the story of, of Texans fighting for their own civic self-determination in the face of some pretty horrifying gerrymandered odds is, I think, the story of Texas. And I think uh, it's the story of the South, too. It's the story of, of, like, you know, what it means to actually believe in democracy. You know, Nicole Hannah-Jones talks about this often, about Black Americans being the sort of true believers in democracy because of how hard organizers, Black organizers have fought for democracy. I feel that energy in our state of people actually refusing to sort of go quietly in the face of pretty intense odds. And so that makes me feel hopeful. And, and I should say, Greg Kazar is not the only or the first. Every time I've gone to Texas, I have been stunned by how many progressive electeds there are at a variety of different levels, um, state, district, county, you name it. Is there a, do you have a favorite you want to lift up, uh, Isha? And then maybe each of you has a, a success story you want to share. <laughs> well, it's hard to do. I'm, I'm a, a fan of um, uh, Jessica Cisneros. I believe, you know, I'm glad to hear. I'm I, I giving Henry Cuellar really a run for his money in the. Yes, I love young women of color who have not been invested in as leaders saying, here I am, I'm taking up this space and I, and I know what my community needs. And that makes me feel Forcing a runoff in the Democratic primary. Amy, a success story. It doesn't have to be a person, but a, a victory story. We've had a lot of defeat stories. Sure. Uh, kind of along the lines of what Isha was saying, the thing that gives me hope is that the young people that I engage with and meet are unapologetic about their like desire for justice and equity. And they understand that all of these issue areas intersect each other and that we can't fight for one without fighting for the other and all of them together. And I think that that gives me hope. Over the summer, a 12-year-old girl reached out to me because she wanted to have her own rally against SB8. 
and she got her friends to come speak. And we had 10 speakers that were under the age of 18 and they talked so passionately and so articulately about why they should have the right to abortion care and all the other human rights that were being attacked. And I just was in awe of these young people who are not only just unapologetic in their beliefs, but they were unafraid to voice them to the establishment and they were just amazing. And so to me, that's a success story and that gives me hope for the future. And Emmett, to you, one thing we haven't really talked about is race and racism in all this story and the sometimes very kind of polar, um, binary, if you like, notion of race that we have, especially, well, in the north of this country. How does that affect what you're up against there? Our organization has been so lucky um, that in the like seats of like the most power positions, right, and decisions, uh, we've been uh, really grateful to have uh, Black trans folks uh, take a step into those roles and really uh, be able to effectively center uh, in, in action, right? What does this look like for our organization? Um, and understanding then what, what is the connection? What's the perspective of also the, the class, right? That comes into this conversation because I think to not talk about class and to talk about race is we're having, uh, you know, a very like superficial conversation in that sense. Uh, you know, I, I look at myself and I kind of joke that, you know, I uh, am I'm barely a person of color uh, in the sense, right, that like I am very like, you know, you see me walking down the street, uh, I'm probably not going to pay a whole lot of attention except for maybe looking at me like, oh, wow, what a dork. Uh, it, it, you know, I look very boring. I, I, I wouldn't stand out, right, in that sense. Uh, because and and I don't target myself in a sense, right? Because of that, because I get to navigate, and because like it gave me being adopted, right, by white parents, gave me a lot of like access to like privilege to their like power to their access. But also conversely, I've been homeless on the street, you know, with a minor child for six months. I have suffered sexual assault, which is how I ended up with the child, like. It's not to say, right, we're insular. It's to understand that all of these things that happen to us are a combination of all of that and how the stage is set. And so for me, knowing I've gone through that, but I also deeply recognize that Black trans women are by far, and Black trans femmes are by far the most uh, in danger of that clear and present danger and violence that we talk about when we talk about the violence and the threats, right, of harm to the trans community. So I think it's balancing. It's not either or. It's saying this is a fuller picture of what this looks like. And the fuller picture, I think, is what we keep on coming back to about the beauty of Texas is the leadership we have, why we believe in what we're doing and why we see this organizing working is because when we say, like, how do we be inclusive but not how do we just be inclusive? How do we welcoming? How do we learn from one another? That like that's what's making things exciting for me, despite despite right so much. Well, Isha, I would love you to to kick off closing comments with the personal. Really, I mean, what do you believe is at stake here in this moment? 
um, that fuels you to do the work that you do? Why? I mean, I, I was really moved by Amy's story about those young people feeling, you know, wanting to tell, wanting to sort of um, act. And, you know, I feel because I feel this balance between despair and resilience that I think we kind of swing through uh, in Texas, I think the thing that makes me feel most hopeful is the fact that when you ask um, younger organizers to talk to you about the issues they care about, they respond in intersectional ways. Um, like Amy said, they don't see uh, reproductive justice and trans liberation and racial justice as disconnected from each other. And that's the work of, you know, a broadly intersectional feminist movement that has, in fact, shaped the way these conversations are happening for young people. So I feel that that's a that's an important starting place. Um, I also have to say, I feel very inspired by the robust mutual aid efforts that have been happening in our state, across our state, from the way that um, abortion funds operate, from what I saw in the wake of pretty structural abandonment by our state and federal government for, for people who survived Harvey, and the way that local organizations and just, you know, people came together to support. And I think there's something very powerful about mutual aid networks. There's a lot to learn from organizers of mutual aid networks. And there's also an intervention to make that mutual aid networks will get us as far as they will get us. And we need the political power to back up those lessons that we've learned about who's most disenfranchised and who's most vulnerable. And I feel that in a state like Texas, there are a million lessons like that to learn. And I would love to see more stories. I have more conversations like this one from organizers who are around the state who are able to say, here's what I know about Texas. Here's what I'm seeing as successful and leveraging those lessons to actually really invest in the state and to invest in the, in the organizers in the state. Amy, same question to you. Yeah, I think I would echo a lot of what Isha said. I think that the fact that one, the leadership of organizations and in our like political sphere have been changing to be more representative of Texas and that young people see that and young people aspire to do that and to be the change, you know, they want to see in the world, I think is so inspiring. And it just, it gives me hope. I do think that I agree with Isha, like Texans are so resilient, which is why despite the fact that abortion has been banned and, you know, people are attacking trans kids, we make sure that our communities can get access to the care that they need, but we don't want to be, we don't want to have to be resilient. You know, we want this to just be realized and in, in our humanity to be realized. And so I think that, I don't know, I just keep going because I know that we're resilient, but I also know that the people coming after us are just going to be so amazing in, in supporting this work and pushing it forward and making it happen. So yeah. Otherwise, I would have given up a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, government, it does seem to me, is supposed to be a mutual aid network. Um, <laughs> just a thought. Emmett, final word from you. Um, what can people do? What would you recommend people do if they want to respond in a positive way to what they've seen and heard here today? I mean, because I'm an ED, I got to do this. Uh, really just support the organizations on the ground. I think like this conversation has been a, a great example of what that looks like uh, to have leadership so deeply rooted 
and deeply invested and deeply visioned uh, for what the landscape is, what the path ahead looks like, and what those obstacles are. Uh, and, and most importantly, what the support uh, of our people look like uh, through that that journey. Um, so I think that that's my <laughs> my answer. All right. So don't give up on Texas. Learn from Texas. Have a com- more complete picture and uh, work like crazy wherever it is that you live. That's what I'm hearing from you all today. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think this too is a reflection of your commitment to working together. That you take the time from each of your individual struggles to spend some time together uh, messaging myths, myth-busting about Texas. I appreciate it. And Isha, thank you for an excellent idea for this episode. Yeah, it was great. I really appreciate it. It was sort of palate cleansing to have a conversation about Texas that wasn't list all the grievances that you have, which are important, but incomplete. <laughs> Would it be possible for me to answer what people can do next again? For some reason, I'm answering what's inspiring to me, and I don't know why. <laughs> no, no, well, you, you, you had, you had, a, I hadn't really asked the what people can do question. I, I'm happy for you to answer it. Go for it, Amy. Um, I think people should talk within their communities about abortion unapologetically, about their values and what lead them to their position. I think people should say the word abortion when they mean abortion. Um, And I think that people should absolutely support the local and state groups on on the ground in their state and community. Brilliant. I have to say, Emmett, when I went to the attorney general's website, Texas, your your lovely AG, the graphic language that they use reminded me of the contrast that Amy's talking about around abortion, that while we don't say the word, they say it over and over and over again, complete with all the graphic descriptions and pictures. And in a sense, I mean, I, this is not for broadcast necessarily, but I'm curious whether you think there's a comparable phenomenon happening in the trans, the, the struggle for trans justice. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the things uh, we're tend to see in success is because um, so really up until now, Right, there's not really been strong enough infrastructure um, for translate orgs to not have to rely more heavily, right, on like these messaging like guidelines, talking points, things like that, right, that like come from cisgender people that are like maybe communications experts, which is great. I am admittedly not a communications expert, as you just saw, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, but at the same time, what do? I, sorry, Uh, at the same time, like what I am an expert on, right, is uh, understanding uh, my own experience, understanding my community experience, understanding uh, strategy and tactics and navigating that way, right? And I think what we're seeing is this like sort of um, a crash, like head on collision of like what's predominantly been like cis gay, directive, like Gill Foundation, et cetera, right? Kind of like calling the shots uh, where that's not real to the experience of the trans community, right? Like if we're being real, like the reason that we have history preserved has been preserved like orally um, through generations of like trans elders, like Monica Roberts, you know, we, we lost her and it was, not just a loss and a personal level, it was 
this fundamental deep loss because she was literally like the trans griot, right? Like the person um, who unapologetically, like literally called it how she saw it. Like we did not always agree on how she saw it, but we always, uh, you know, respected, um, you know, that we were both coming from a, a place of deep love. Uh, and so I think it's like, now looking at like, how have we survived? We've kept each other alive. When we say like, we're all we have, like, because that's all we've had. Like when you look at like Pose, you see all this like sort of like population of America consuming the trans like culture of the ballroom scene and like taking like what is shiny and fun because we love drag and we love that, but like we hate like trans people. Uh, at the same time, right? And, and I'm not saying like collectively America, like I don't believe that, right? But like the messaging is off here, right? Of what we even know is successful in, in like how we consume as like a country, the entertainment, what draws us, what connects us. And so to me, I look like, how do you see a show like Pose and love it and watch it and not connect what is happening now to understanding where trans people are, the parody issues that we're suffering, why like even like how many decades later things still look the same, like. The, the abortion story, could, the abortion activists can tell the same story um, without the TV, without the glitzy TV show, uh, at least so far. Um, I mean, it's such, a familiar struggle. And I think Emmett, you, you know, experts got us into this mess. Communications experts got us into this mess. You're a great communicator. Don't even think twice about it. And I think coming out was kind of a great idea. <laughs> Only one of the few things that actually worked. Uh, and everything we've been taught since by communications experts is to not be so out. Um, Isha, looks like you want to say something. But I do think that sometimes we try, what we're trying to solve for is a community connectivity issue. And there's not a message that can do that. You know, there's not, there's not a, like a single silver bullet that we can use that will get the solution that will communicate to everybody. And it's why also coming out about your abortions is really important. When people find out the repro work that I've done, when I, you know, like they, they would disclose to me about their abortions. And it's because they hadn't told anyone else. I'm sure this happens to you too, Amy, where people are like, oh, me, my grandmother, this whole thing, people tell you all kinds of stuff. And it's because there is so much stigma and there's not another safe space. And what that tells me is that people are craving a safe space to be able to talk about self-determination of their bodies and controlling their fertility. And that doesn't exist. And if it doesn't exist in our movements, then our movements are failing them. I think there's a fundamental thing to like that point though, that I wish we would have touched on. And I think like the thing that also like brings our issues into full circle is patriarchy, is misogyny, is even understanding and explicitly like knowing, like as a trans man, it does not exempt me from being misogynistic. It does not exempt me from being sexist. It does not exempt me at all from the benefit of male privilege. It puts me in that place. And so to understand that, and I think like, that's something that like, when we talk about like abortion and like trans rights of how does it all come together? Like it's not necessarily explicitly named, but it's the idea that like we've shamed 
like people to the point where like they're like they feel bad that they don't want to have kids like i'm sorry have you read the news like who feels bad for not wanting to have kids right now it's called you know just being i think a realist at this point amy i gotta let you come back in here i was just gonna say that i ever since i started telling my abortion story which i didn't tell for like the first 15 years after i had my abortion story despite the fact that I work in this movement, despite the fact that my dad was an abortion provider, like I didn't tell my story, but once I did, everyone came out of the woodwork because my story intersects my mental health and like other things. And people would talk to me about it. Just like Isha said, everyone would talk to me about it because they wanted to talk about it. And I feel like it's not telling, I love what Isha said about it. It's not like the single bullet, because I think that's where we do get hung up. Like what is the right talking point we need to get out there? But it's like having the space for everyone's stories because people will find commonality and shared values. And we just need to make room for that because I think that's how you affect the change when you have empathy flowing and people just like connecting on a human level. But that that's not there's not a lot of space for that in politics or, you know, the legislature. And it's unfortunate. Um, Amy, Adam, me, they, Isha Pandit, Emmett Schelling. Thank you so, so much. Great to be with you, Amy, Isha, Emmett. Great. Thank you all.